Hey, good morning. Uh, we're, we're wrapping up this series called Neighboring today, but not our focus on it because Jesus said the most important thing when he was asked what's most important, he said, love the Lord your God, Matthew, or excuse me, Luke, uh, put up that verse there, please. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Matters, but he says, and the second is like it. Love your neighbors yourself. And all the law and all the prophets hang on these two commandments. Loving your neighbor is really important. What if he actually meant it was really important? What if he actually meant we're supposed to love our neighbor? And what if we actually loved our actual neighbors, the people that lived around us? Now, one of the things I've learned about neighbors is usually neighbors and parties kind of happen. They go hand in hand. Sometimes it's voicing a complaint to an authority about a neighbor having a party. Sometimes it's a neighbor voicing a complaint about your party. Sometimes it's being invited to a party or not being invited. But actually, parties, I think, have a lot to do with the great commandment. And Jesus went to a lot of parties. He was invited to parties. And I think a lot of people, when they think about who Jesus was, I think they Think about a party that if Jesus walked in, the party would stop and the room would clear out. But when you read the Gospels, when Jesus walked into a party, a lot of things got better. And interesting things happened. And people crowded in to where it got to be capacity and they had to turn people away. Jesus was usually at the center of these parties. Today I want to talk about two parties and what we can learn about Jesus and the great commandment of what does it mean to actually love our neighbor? And if this is so important, the question we've asked the last couple of weeks is, what are the barriers that keep us from taking the great commandment seriously? What keeps us from specifically loving our neighbor? Because if Jesus said it's important, and for whatever reason in our life, if we're not doing that or not as much as we should, what keeps us from that? Because there's kind of a progression, I think, that happens to really take it seriously. It kind of looks like this. You have somebody that's a neighbor, and at first they're a stranger. They live next door, but we don't know their name. And then eventually, perhaps, we learn their name, and we learn a little bit about them, and they become an acquaintance. They move from being, hey, pal, hey, buddy, hey, neighbor, to, hey, Bob, hey, Sally, hey, whoever it is, you know them. Then you start knowing their story, their hopes, their dreams, their purpose, their pain, their suffering, their challenges. And then they move from being an acquaintance to being a relationship. And we want us as a church, and if you're a guest here, we're glad you're here. Jesus said the great commandment isn't just for live oak, it's for people who follow Jesus. So that applies to you if you're a follower of Jesus. If not, you need to know that that's what he expects of us as followers of Jesus. And we want to kind of give you some tools with that. So to move from stranger to acquaintance, we gave you this tool called a block map. And these are actually available at Guest Central if you want them. Uh, They can help you. Um, kind of write in, and what we challenge you to do is for the eight houses, apartments, dorm rooms, dwellings, whatever it is, of the eight closest people. Now, if you live in a rural setting, that's a pretty, it's pretty stretched out, so you might have to get creative, but for most of us, we can think of the eight people around us, and it's not laid out this neatly in my house, around my house, but as you fill in these names, we, wanted to, we challenge you to do one, and write a letter A on each block, What are the names of all the people that live there, first and last? And then letter B, what are the details about their life? What do they do? Where do they go to school? 
What are their hobbies? What are some details that you can learn about them without just standing back and just casually observing? But you learn it through conversation. And then letter C for each person, right? What, what's their story and what are their hopes? What's their purpose? And maybe what's their challenge and pain? We challenge you to do that and we're going to keep bringing this up throughout the year because we think this is important, not because this card needs to be filled out. This is a tool to go back to that previous slide to move you from stranger to acquaintance. It's a tool. And we really believe that the people next door matter. So the question is, with that block map, who are your eight? Who are your eight? Who are the people that God says, I want you to love your neighbor because I love your neighbor. And you're going to be the one I put in their life or one of the people I put in their life to let them know they are loved by God and one of his followers. It's not a strategy to to get them to come to church or get something from them. We want something for them, not want something from them. We simply want to love our neighbor because God loves our neighbor. So one of the barriers that keep us is simply, it's hard to love your neighbor if you don't know their name. The other barrier we talked about last week is time. Most of us, our schedules are at capacity. Putting something else on our calendar is challenging. So, so we challenged you to take something off your calendar so someone can go on it. Put your neighbors on your calendar. Invest time. Spend time with your neighbors. And we challenge you specifically, spend one hour out front this week. Kind of a rough week to do that. Wind will do that to you and make it like, I would rather not be outside. Sometimes you got to choose your pockets well to go out and not be blown away. But I, I encourage you to keep doing that. Spend time in the front yard rather than the backyard. And this week I want to talk about another barrier of what keeps us from taking the Great Commandment seriously, being fear. Some of us have fears because we're introverted. Peopling is hard, which makes neighboring hard. Sometimes it's we're just so stressed or overwhelmed with life and we have this fear of adding something else. Even talk about rearranging your schedule prompted fear in you. I think one of the biggest challenges of fear and the fear of neighboring is for many of us, the thing that causes fear, anxiety, or stress is the unknown in life. How will this turn out? How will this go? But also not knowing somebody, an unknown neighbor, can actually provoke fear. So a fear of the unknown causes fear. The solution's pretty simple. Don't let them be unknown. Get to know your neighbor. See, the issue of neighboring, the challenge of neighboring, the great commandment will ask many things of you, from you. It'll co- confront several things in your life, how you spend your, your time, how you spend your money, how you view your things, and it will cause you to confront your fears. In many ways, neighboring is, is more challenging than going across the street, across, the, across town to a different part of town or across the globe to a different country and, and serving on a mission trip or trying to do something to serve people in need. Neighboring's harder because when I leave the mission trip or I leave the other side of town and come home, I don't see those people anymore, or at least not that often, but the people I live next to, kind of like your family, we see them every day. There's a saying that says, good fences make good neighbors. Ever heard that? We like to arrange our lives because as a community, we've kind of, a society, excuse me, we've moved from living, being front yard people to backyard people, and fences have gone from chain link to to wooden, and now we even fill in the slots, so no peekers, and and we can have complete privacy. 
And our indoors, are, you know, what we have inside is so great that we actually never have to go out and be around people. Good fences don't make good neighbors. They make isolated strangers. And when we set up our life where people are, put, are blocked out, our fear increases because they're an unknown. We have this desire also to have safe, clean environments to control kind of what happens to us, and it lends up to isolation. For whatever reason, Jesus said what's most important is loving God. That relationship matters, but you are not supposed to do that in isolation. It's with others. God wants you to adopt you to be a child of God, but you are not an only child. And he cares about his kids. One of the effects of the 24-hour news cycle we have and the constant stream of information about what's going on in the world and what's wrong with the world is it makes us very fearful and suspicious. We look at others and we don't know them and immediately we play a story forward or we write a story. Ever played that game? You're sitting there, people watching, and you're writing stories about people just based on what you can observe. When we turn on the TV and we see or hear or read our social media feed about what's going on and all the brokenness in our world, it causes us to fear. It shapes our worldview, which ends up shaping our view of how we view people. Then Jesus shows up, and he walks toward the brokenness. He puts himself right in the middle of it. And he puts himself around people who are very different than him. And Jesus seemed to like and love people who were very different than him. And people that were very different from him seemed to love and like him. And he models out this idea of neighboring by simply walking toward it. And the reason I don't think that that was just a Jesus play, but I think it's in our playbook too, is because he said, love your neighbor. In Luke 7, Jesus is invited to a party at a, at a Pharisee, a teacher of the law, at their house, and they love to quiz him. And I think this guy was pretty kind of somewhat accepting of Jesus, kind of curious. So he had him to his table, and Luke chapter 7, verse 36 says this. So he goes to his house, there's a party crasher. Jesus is invited to the party, but someone else shows up. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, Jesus went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. This wasn't like a thing where Jesus all of a sudden is kind of wishing, man, you don't have a back on the chair, so I'm just going to lay down. Like, like it was, they had these low tables, and after they ate, they didn't just get up and leave. They sat and they connected. And that was actually one of the most intimate parts of the meal because we're done eating. Now we can just sit and talk. And so he's leaning back and he's sitting there and this happens. Verse 37, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, that he's at this dinner party and she decides, I'm going to crash it. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Now, this is kind of a weird scene for us, kind of like reclining at the table. We don't do that. Well, actually, when people were going to eat, there was this idea that because they had open-toed shoes and open sewers, washing your feet was a big deal for cleanliness. It was actually an act that the servants did, and Jesus actually served his disciples the night he did the Last Supper with them by taking on the role of a servant and washing their feet. 
and she's doing this for Jesus, chances are, this is after the meal, it's probably already been done by somebody. This is not about cleanliness. This was an act of worship for her, an act of gratitude. And the guy who's hosting the party, one, he's like, I didn't invite her. Secondly, I would never invite her. I know her story. And third, someone's already done this. This isn't her job. And what is she doing? What's happening here? When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, and he sees it happening, he sees what's going on, and he sees it playing out, and I bet his stomach is in knots, and his heart is racing, and he's frustrated, and he's probably making eye contact, and eyes are darting around the room going, could somebody do something? Is there security? Of course, they didn't have an earpiece then, but I mean, at some point, he's like saying, security, the old-fashioned earpiece. Hello, can somebody do something here? He sees what's happening, and he says to himself, if this man knew, if, excuse me, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, which probably took him off guard. Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. And then what Jesus usually does is he tells a story. Simon is not the character in the story, but he wants Simon to see the point of the story and the point of who Jesus is and the point of God's mind, the point of God's agenda, the point of why Jesus had no problem with what this woman was doing. He said two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. So one owes 500, one owes 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. He says, yeah, of course, if you've been forgiven much, you're going to have much gratitude and much appreciation of how much has been taken off your shoulders, how much of your story has been redeemed. He said, that's what's going on here, Simon. And he asked him this question, and there's more to this question or this statement that meets the eye. He makes this statement, he asks this question. He turned toward the woman and said to Simon, so he's not locking eyes with Simon. He's locking eyes with the woman. And he says, Simon, do you see her? Do you see this woman? Well, of course he did. She's crashing his party. She's embarrassing him. And her reputation now, he's thinking, one, if Jesus knows her reputation, I don't get it. And I don't think he does because he wouldn't accept this from someone like her. So maybe he's not who he says he is and his mind is kind of spinning. And he says, Simon, do you see her? Do you see her? What he's saying is, do you see beyond her past? Do you see her value? To God? Do you see someone who's responding to me as an act of worship and forgiveness and uh, 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 um, redemption and saying, I'm so thankful for what I've been forgiven that the best I can do is to wash his feet, the most humbling thing I can do with an extravagant gift of this perfume. 
Can you see past people's past? Can you see past people's present? So you can see people's value. You've never locked eyes with someone who does not deeply matter to God. And in this case, he tells a story to Simon to say, she matters. Do you see that? Do you see the value? Do you see the worth? Do we have eyes to see what's really happening in our neighborhoods? Not just their names and what they do for a living and where they go to school and what hobbies they have and maybe even what their fears and their, their pain and their, their hopes and their purpose. Do we have eyes to really see our neighbors and see that they matter to God so they should matter to us? Do we see their value? Do we see the fact that God is in the business of rewriting stories and redeeming past and writing a future? Are we willing to be around people who are very different than us so they can experience something different in their life? Maybe the thing we should be praying is we see our neighbors. And maybe Jesus would ask us, you know, Doug, do you really see them? Do you see your neighbors? Because Simon saw her. He was very aware he was, she was there. He wasn't like, when, when Simon, he says, Simon, do you see this woman? He goes, oh, when'd she get here? He knew she was there. But do you really see her the way God does? Maybe the prayer we should be praying is, God, where are you at work in someone's life? Where is someone who is overlooked that I can see and be an expression of your love and your kindness, your hope and your truth? Do we have eyes to really see what's happening in our neighborhoods? And would we pray, God, where are you at work and how can I be part of that? She crashes the party. I think Jesus was so glad that she did because she heard that she has value and Simon learned that she has value. And Jesus challenged us to say, really see people. There was another party. There was a guy named Levi who actually became one of Jesus' disciples and it says this, also in the Gospel of Luke chapter 5, it says this, after this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector. Jesus noticed people, he sees him. The thing is, everybody had to see him. He was a tax collector. Everyone sees the government on tax day, right? Or the government will come see you. And in this case, tax collectors gathered the tax, and whatever they gathered extra, they got to keep. So they were hated people. Most people would see them and shake their heads or see them and complain or see them and not see their worth. This probably wasn't the first time that Jesus saw him or he saw Jesus. Because very quickly, he makes a decision. Jesus saw a tax collector by the name of Levi, who also went by Matthew, sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. That's the most common invitation of Jesus in the New Testament. Follow me. And sometimes they say, where are we going? He would say, you'll see. Follow me. To follow me means I relinquish leadership. And he tells Levi, hey, Let's go on a journey. Let's go on a trip. Let's go on a journey. Let's change. Let's have a different life. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. That's the invitation to you. Jesus says to you, follow me. And it will involve leaving something. 
Jesus said it involves leaving everything, and sometimes you actually do have to get up and leave a career or leave something or leave someone, leave something that's in your life that you're holding on to, and it becomes your focal point, your identity, sometimes the thing you worship, sometimes it's the thing that, that it matters most to you, but Jesus says, if you'll hold everything with an open hand, I'll fill it with something so much better. Will you follow me? And Levi left a very lucrative career and said, sure, I'll do it. And as a follower of Jesus, Matthew, Levi, would go on to write the gospel of Matthew. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Matthew was probably there at the party. I mean, when Jesus showed up to go out to eat with his disciples, it was Jesus' party of 13. Maybe even more. I mean, waiting for a table at Applebee's was really rough for Jesus because he always had an entourage. So Matthew was probably there at the party and watched this exchange with Simon and this woman. He saw it all. He heard Jesus say, love God with all your heart, soul, mind. Love your neighbors yourself. And he records it in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 22. He would go on in his life and he would become a martyr, dying after he was commissioned to go out and take the world and all the world and make disciples. He did that after Jesus died and rose again and ascended to heaven. Matthew goes out. Matthew's known for so many things, but the first thing Matthew did when Jesus said, follow me, his first response, his first action as a follower of Jesus was to throw a party. 29, it says this, then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. The thing about Matthew and Matthew Levi is all his friends were like him and people didn't like his friends. People didn't like Levi. And Jesus said, no, I love you. And I like you. And I've got something for you. So it's Jesus' party of 13, and we're going to go to your banquet, so make sure we have room for all my people, and bring all your people together, and let's just have a party. Let's just get together. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, not to Jesus, to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And again, Jesus is accused often of running with the wrong crowd. Why would you hang out with them? Why would you even value people like that? And Jesus constantly shows over and over and over again that the reason I'm with people like that is because all people have value and God has a desire for all people. What will you do to express that value? Levi, Matthew, now a follower of Jesus, gathers his friends by throwing a party. Jesus comes to the party. He's accused of hanging out with messy people. And they ask the disciples, but they could be asking Jesus, why do you do this? Do you know what you're doing? Do you know who these people are? Jesus would answer an emphatic, absolutely I do. Do you? These were people that created in the image of God. They're invited to the, not to this, to this banquet, but to the great banquet. To my t family. Why aren't you inviting them? Real relationships are always messy. Think about in your life. My best self, the best version that people see of me, not who I am, but the best image I put up around people, I don't know that well. The people I know the best see the worst of me. They see the real me. And life is messy. And a lot of times, I'm the guy in the family that's the weird one. I'm the one that's the mess. 
When you have relationships, you see the good, the bad, and the ugly, and everything in between in your families. It should be that with our neighbors as well, that we don't just go up and lay all our cards on the table, but we turn a stranger into an acquaintance, an acquaintance into a relationship, and we love people, and we let them see who we really are, and we get to know who they really are, and we express this love for them. Real relationships are always messy, but Jesus walked toward messiness and brokenness. And he encouraged, he said, would you just be authentic? Because I love who you really are. Can we talk about who you really are? It all started with an invitation to Levi. Follow me. Well, if you say yes to Jesus when he says to you, follow me, it will lead you to loving your neighbor. Jesus commanded it. The apostle Paul reinforced that. Jesus modeled it. And if you follow the great commandment of loving your neighbor, loving God with all you have and loving all as you love yourself, I believe it will change your neighborhood. It will change your school. It will change your workplace. It will change your team. But at the end of it, what I think happens is it will change you. Levi was changed by being on the receiving end of loving your neighbor from Jesus, so much so that he invited the people he was closest with. He invited his eight and said, hey, I'm going to have a banquet. I don't want you to come. I want you to meet this person. And he does. It changed him. See, the big idea this week is this. In order to take the great commandment seriously, we have to be with those that God has placed around us. They can't be strangers. can't even really be acquaintances. There needs to be a relationship. And it's not always going to be pretty or easy, but I think it will always be significant and impactful. It, will ch- it can change the people around us, but it will change you. And sometimes, just like Matthew, Jesus on day one did not ask him to go die for his faith. He didn't say, hey, Matthew, now that you're Levi, now that you're following me, I want you to write down in about 28 chapters worth everything that I say or do, and let's make sure that that's around for the next 2,000 plus years. That wasn't day one for Levi. His first next step was simply, hey, follow me, and now, hey, you want to get your friends together? Let's have a party. It starts with a party, and if you want to move from stranger to acquaintance to relationship, that first tool, the block map, helps you know who your eight are, but the second thing, what if you just threw a block party? What if you're eight, you tried to just get them all together? No agenda except maybe food or just fun or kids. I'll, I'll give you some examples of how you could do that. Simply just throw a party. And what we're challenging you to do, here's your next step, not more by next week, but in the next six months, in between now and the end of the summer, find a reason to get as many of your eight as possible together. Just for a party. Partner with others to, to plan it. Here, here's some way you can do it. Just get into the, the rhythms that already occur in your neighborhood. There's weekly rhythms. You can build rhythms into a regular week, much the same way you already have a weekly standing date night or plans of what you do, or your child has soccer practice on a certain day. Maybe start a tradition of saying, hey, this is going to be neighbor night. We're just going to always invite a neighbor to come over for dinner or go out to eat on this night. I would suggest Taco Tuesday, the high holiday of Taco Tuesday. Now, I'm Orthodox. Crunchy beef is my Taco Tuesday. But whatever kind of tacos you feel best. Do game nights. TV shows, watching sports, play dates. 
Find some people to go to other churches and say, this isn't about getting people to go to my church or your church. It's just about loving our neighbor like Jesus said we should. Because what if Jesus meant we should actually love our actual neighbors? But there's some kind of rhythm. It may be something you're already doing and saying, would you like to join us? I'm going to do this with my kids. Would you like to join us? And as you're there, just neighbor them. Love your neighbor as yourself. There are monthly rhythms, certain rhythms that probably won't feasibly fit into your weekly routine, but maybe it's doable on a monthly or bi-monthly practice. Have a neighborhood cookout. Throw parties that people actually want to come to. Those kind of parties. Book clubs, supper clubs, movie nights, neighborhood groups or events. Be willing to practice reverse hospitality. Let yourself be on the receiving end of hospitality. This week, a couple weeks ago, our, our basketball goal blew down, caused damage, and because it's West Texas, and so we have more bags of sand and things anchoring down our basketball goal now that I think it'll stand for a while, but we were fixing it, and we are putting some water and sand in the base and putting stuff on it, and my neighbor, Miss Peggy, who's a great neighbor, man, I don't just, I know Jesus says to love my neighbor, but I love my neighbor. She's great. She has my kids over to pet her cat, and she talks with them all the time, so we're kind of wrestling with this basketball goal, the four of us, and all of a sudden, I see Miss Peggy there, and she stretched her hose over, and she's helping us. And she's got sand, and she's putting in this little hole that we've got to do all this stuff on the base of this thing. And I'm like, man, what a great neighbor. But it's kind of humbling. I go, actually, I'm supposed to be doing this to you, and you're doing this to me. But when you allow people to serve you, it humbles you, and it makes you grateful, and actually makes you love your neighbors even more. And also lets them see that, hey, you're someone that's just like them that needs help. Be willing to be on the receiving end of reverse hospitality. And then there are yearly rhythms. Some of the best opportunities for hospitality happen on a less frequent basis. A Super Bowl party. A Texas Tech basketball watching party. Too soon, I'm sorry. Holiday parties. I know some, uh, Deanne Salsky, who's our groups and teams director at Live Oak. Man, Halloween in their neighborhood is awesome. They have a great Halloween deal where parents just come and gather in the front yard and sit there as people, kids are out in the neighborhood. Create your own holidays. Birthday parties for kids. National Night Out in our, in our nation, there's a kind of a created holiday. I think it's August 7th. It's sometime in August where there's a night where they just say, hey, it's National Night Out. Get your neighbors together. Find an excuse to throw a party, to gather with people. Spend some time thinking about the ideas of how. Pray about the rhythms of hospitality in your world that God may be leading you to practice. There's a great book um, called uh, The Simplest Way to Change the World by Dustin Willis and Brandon Clements. Uh, there's also some other books about uh, the art of neighboring and, and the neighboring church. There's just ideas of how to live this out practically. But what if the solution to changing our neighborhoods and what if the answer to actually living this out is simply throwing a party? In a word, it's simply this. It's hospitality. 1 Peter 4, 9. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Remember that last part. Well, I'll do it, but I won't like it. Well, then you're not doing it. That's not loving your neighbor. It does have less to do with emotion. It's more about action than anything. But how you do it matters as much as what you do. Hospitality simply means inviting in, welcoming, serving, connecting, practical and tangible ways to bring people in and make them feel welcome and at home and serve them. Hospitality some people believe is why the early church survived. 
We know it was the Holy Spirit. God said, I'll build my church. Nothing will prevail, prevail against it. But the outsider's looking in and says, man, I don't get it. I think it's blasphemous. I think they're wrong. But man, if they aren't the most welcoming and loving people I've ever met. And when the plague showed up and wiped out a third of the Roman Empire, the Christians are the one that practiced hospitality, which was the last time you wanted to be having a block party. If we think the flu is bad, during the plague, why don't you come to my house? I'll take care of you. Hospitality could change the world, and sometimes it starts with simply a party. But really, it starts with seeing your neighbor. Here's our prayer for this week. God, give me eyes to see where you are already at work in my neighborhood and in the lives of my neighbors. God, where are you at work? And then right in that spot, I want to get to know them more, welcome them more, and it might just be as simple as throwing a party. Billy Graham passed away this week, one of the greatest communicators our world's ever known, one of the greatest uh, leaders, not just Christian leaders, but a leader, uh, preached to millions of people live. Three million people, it said, came to know Jesus because of Billy Graham. Uh, and he said this about loving your neighbor. He says, loving your neighbor is always going to be hard, harder than it should be if you're not deeply aware that you are loved by God and if you haven't allowed Jesus to practice his ultimate act of hospitality, of giving his life to you that he gave for you at the cross. Receiving Jesus into your life and putting him at the center. It's out of that abundance of love and being loved by God, being forgiven much, that you have much to give. And that might be the best next step for you. This is the end of this series for us, but this is not the end of this focus. As a church, we say we want to love God, love people, and go make disciples together. That's what the early church did. That's what Matthew did. That's what Jesus told us to be about. So for the next, in the next six months, what's your plan to do a party? Do more than one. But let's practice neighboring. And these resources will continue to be there at live-oak.org slash neighboring. Offer neighboring tips. Sign up for an email uh, blast. Where we're going to keep sending some neighboring stuff out throughout the year. Not uh, every week, but periodically. So if you'd like to be in on that, which I would ask you to, um, that would be great because we want to focus on loving, loving God and loving our neighbor. Let's stand for closing prayer. And as Mark said in the welcome, we have two family Sundays coming up, which means kindergarten through fifth graders are invited in here with us. Both those Sundays will be a little bit different. But on the uh, last Sunday of spring break, March 18th, will be this thing called... I, I put the wrong slide in there. I'm sorry. That's my bad. Kids frequently ask questions. See if you can find that slide. If you have kids that have questions about faith, about Jesus, please submit those because what we're going to do on that Sunday is we're going to have a panel that will answer those questions. Next Sunday is Next Gen Sunday. Then we have uh, the first Sunday of spring break, the time change, the Sunday after that. What questions do they have? In the sign-up links on the app or on the website, you can find a form where you can submit the question. If they're brave enough, have them do their name. We won't call them up, but we might actually might want to kind of ask them a follow-up question or help them. And if we don't address that question on a Sunday morning, we will at some point. And chances are the, kid, the questions our kids are asking, kids and students, chances are some of the same questions we have. And so that Sunday, we're going to frequently ask these frequently asked questions that kids are asking. So please submit that. And uh, we believe that could be a real impactful Sunday that we're going to learn a lot about what's going on in the hearts of our kids that day. Um, and we will answer them, if not that Sunday, at some point in the near future in kids' ministry, student ministry, or even in here. Make sense?
So submit your questions if you have kids. If you want to just pretend you're a kid, submit your question. You can do that too. Heavenly Father, thanks that you model loving your neighbor by loving us in the ultimate act of hospitality, of welcoming, welcoming us in, not just to your home, but into your family, into the kingdom of God by giving your life at the cross. There are many people who have served me in life, but no one has served me as deeply as that, and I'm, I'm grateful. And Father, for some of us, our next step might be saying yes to your great invitation into your family of having you be our forgiver and leader so we can be adopted in your family. If that's their next step, Lord, help give them the courage to take that today. If our next step is simply to throw a party and get to know our neighbors, and over time as we move through that progression of acquaintance, stranger, a stranger acquaintance and, and relationship, help us to go deeper of knowing our neighbors and actually seeing our neighbors so we can love our neighbors with a pure, no strings attached, love. Father, thanks that when we know that we're loved by you, we have so much love to offer. I pray we would offer that to many people this week and in the future. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for being here. I hope to see you next week.